If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why did warfare play such a pivotal part in Aztec society? How could claiming captives benefit a warrior in life and death? And what was flower war? Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Caroline dodds Panic takes a look at the warriors and weaponry of the Aztecs to consider how warfare played a prominent part in everyday life, from the cradle to the grave and beyond. Hi Caroline, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on again. So we are going to be talking about warfare, weaponry and warriors in the time of the Aztecs. And I think first off, the ultimate question right off the bat is, How central was warfare to Aztec society? Well, it's absolutely central. This is something I have written about. I've written an article called A Warlike Society. And although it's got a question mark, it is fundamentally something that is a structuring principle that is used to organise Aztec culture. They not only apply it in actual warfare, but have created themselves as a society where men and women see themselves as part of the war effort. We know this because if you look at the sources, which I'm probably going to come back to because they're quite hard, they have recreated for themselves in the, the 1430s a history that sees them as a society founded on war. So supposedly in 1298, they're settled at a place called Tizapan because they've migrated down from the north. And the warrior god, their patron god, Huitzilopochtli, says this isn't the place we're supposed to settle. We need to move on and we need to do it in a suitably warlike way. And so they manufacture a reason to depart in a kind of violent way. It's actually an amazing story where they persuade one of the local rulers to give his daughter to them to become they say the bride of our god and then this significant misunderstanding occurs where he thinks it's a big honor which it is but they then sacrifice her and so this creates a situation for war now it's not really important whether that's 
strictly speaking factual the important thing is that the Aztecs are telling this story of themselves as a warlike culture and it's really imbued in every aspect of their society. It seems thoroughly embedded in their society so what reasons did the Aztecs have for engaging in warfare? Well there are obviously a lot of different reasons like in every society but it's important first of all to say that this is a really febrile environment where there are city-states all warring and disputing, allying and fighting for their position in a tribute and power pyramid. And when the Aztecs, or more properly the Mexica people, as they would have called themselves, arrive in the Valley of Mexico, they obviously are at the bottom of that pyramid. And they are starting by having to establish themselves in this climate. So first of all, there are political reasons for doing it. They're trying to get established in this area. They become part of what's often called the Triple Alliance with two other cities and gradually build up their influence and their economic success because, as I've mentioned, the higher up the pyramid you are, the more tribute that you can take in from other people. It is also a really ideological reason for warfare because fundamentally it is tied not just to their worldview, the idea that the Aztecs should be an expansionist culture, that they they talk about their having an empire stretching from sea to sea, also, it's how they organise their social structure. So the more successful you are in war, as I'm sure we'll come on to, the higher up the social status pyramid you get. Rulers have to show themselves to be effective war leaders before they're allowed to be crowned as the Tlatoani, the ruler. It's absolutely embedded in everything and is used not just as a way to be successful economically. So by the time the Spanish arrive in 1519, Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, is absolutely dependent on tribute to succeed. It can't support itself. But also religious reasons, the founding of the sacrificial cult means that they're having to go to war to bring in captives. There are good social status reasons. It's really so complicated. I feel like I'm getting into areas that we're probably going to touch on in the rest of the conversation. I mean, there is so much here that we are definitely going to talk about. I think there's so many interesting facets, definitely. But one of the particular areas I wanted to ask you about is I've heard of something called flower war. Now, could you tell us a little bit about perhaps what this is? Flower wars, known by the Aztecs as Xochicayotl, are a subject of some controversy because they're a little bit hazy in the sources. But what it looks like is that they are wars specifically to go and capture people to be sacrificed. So they're almost a kind of symbolic war. You decide that you're going to set up a battle with one of your neighbours. It's an opportunity to capture people for sacrifice, but it's also an opportunity to test out new warriors, to give young warriors experience, but more importantly, for the most able, most important warriors, it seems to show off and be incredibly impressive. Now, it's not without risk, because Shemalpahin, one of the sources, who is a mestizo, a mixed heritage writer, writing most of a century after the Spanish invasion, he says that after 1415, when the Aztec Empire is beginning to get really large and impressive, after 1415, he says that nobles who are captured in those wars start being sacrificed along with the commoners where prior to that point, anyone who was captured would be exchanged at the end. It was feels like before that point, it was more of a game. 
So perhaps this is something that's evolving and changing. And this is one of the real problems with our sources. We have these little snippets and then we try and put them together and we make assumptions that things are maybe the same all the time. And it's really, really difficult. We just have these snippets. So some people have said the flower wars are training wars. That doesn't fit terribly well with me because most of the sources we have say that the most impressive warriors showed off really importantly there and they were at the forefront and it was a display of charisma and glamour. But equally, they do need to secure a supply of captives for sacrifice because of their belief structure. So it makes sense that maybe you don't conquer your nearest neighbours and you have this convenient source of captives through these flower wars because the other cities are also needing warriors for sacrifice. It's not just the Aztecs that are doing that. How far did the idea of sacrifice actually play into Aztec warfare? It's incredibly important. And the reason we know that it's so important is that the Aztecs don't principally try to kill people during battles. So even against the Spanish in the beginning, they go in and they try to cut them on the leg so that they'll fall and can be dragged off the battlefield. And this is a quite considerable difficulty, of course, when they come up against a force of people who are fighting to kill. So we know it's incredibly important because we then see it in this different climate. We have eyewitness accounts of this. Fascinatingly, even once they start realising they have to kill the Spanish in order to try and succeed, they don't want to give them the honour of a glorious warrior death so they try to club them on the back of the head so they die like criminals but most importantly they're trying to capture people for sacrifice and the reason for that is extremely complicated as you might imagine but to simplify it they have a thing called the blood debt which is where at the beginning of time the gods sacrifice blood from themselves from their own bodies to create the world and so the Aztecs are bound to offer blood in turn to keep the world turning. It gives energy to the sun to cross the sky. It fuels the gods. They believe that the world will come to an end if they don't offer sacrifices. So they are constantly structuring their social order and also their military political order around trying to take captives for sacrifice. There's another side to this, which is that if you take enough sacrificial captives, you start to rise up the ranks. So there's a more personal, a more individual, a more socio-political reason for people to want to be doing this as well. These things all get entangled. One of the things that people have tried to do, in fact, is to disentangle these things, to say, well, was sacrifice and warfare? No, really, it was political or it was economic. And they think in doing that, they're making the Aztecs more understandable, more rational, seemingly less superstitious or barbaric. For me, and this of course is my approach as a cultural historian, I don't think you can disentangle them. I think that religion is part of their decision-making process. They use those things as part of their logic. But warfare is somewhere where you see quite a lot of controversial opinions. And so you will see different attitudes to this, different approaches, different theories, depending on who you're talking to. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. 
And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, this is something I really would like to touch upon. The traditions surrounding death, and they seem quite significant in Aztec culture. Could you perhaps tell us about the rituals surrounding an Aztec warrior's death and perhaps their rivals' deaths? How different were their approaches? Well, that's an interesting question because the ideal death for an Aztec warrior was to die either in battle or as a sacrifice. So you wouldn't die in your own city and be buried in your city. It happens somewhere else. So the rituals tend to be rituals of mourning that don't actually involve your body or your bones at all. The Aztecs believe that how you die determines the afterlife that you go to. So it's not about what you do in your life. It's about how you die. So people who die a watery death go to the water afterlife, for example. Most people go to a place called Mictlan, the land of the dead, which is a kind of dark place. It's not hell exactly. It's a damp, dark, not very pleasant place under the earth. And their spirits will remain there until the world is devoured at the end of time. Now, there are a few ways you can escape that fate. The two most obvious ones being either to die as a warrior in battle or in sacrifice or to die in childbirth. And those two deaths are paralleled in the Aztec belief system. It's kind of hard to talk about one without the other. They believe that the spirits of warriors spend four years accompanying the sun, leading and heralding this great god, their tribal god, Huitzilopochtli, to the zenith at midday. And then the spirits of women who died in childbirth take the sun to the setting at dusk. Now, that seems the same, doesn't it? But actually, you're giving men this kind of glorious leading and heralding and the women this potentially dreadful responsibility because they believe that the sun might fail to arise in the morning. It has to fight its way through Mictlan under the earth to get up in the morning. Now, after four years, it's like a a kind of promotion plan. Four years of this service, you go on to your ultimate fate, your spirit, and the spirits of warriors go to become hummingbirds and butterflies that dance in the sun and sip the nectar. And they say it's as if they're living drunk. It tells you quite a bit about Aztec worldviews that the idea of being oblivious to the, the hardships of the world is the ultimate kind of privilege. Women who die in childbirth, who are seen as warriors, I feel like I'm jumping ahead to something else we might talk about. So women who in childbirth are seen as warriors. They are talked about as capturing a baby and carrying the small shield. And so their spirits are also kind of warlike. After four years, they become the Siwateteo. It means women gods who 
live at the crossroads vesting ill will on people on particular days. They're very powerful, but kind of dark. And then at the end of time, they will become the tsitsimime, a word that is only ever translated in a kind of Eurocentric way as devil women who will devour humanity at the end of the fifth age. So you have this thing where men, warriors, go off to become kind of trivial, happy animals and women, the spirits of women who die in childbirth, become incredibly important and powerful and also dark and unpleasant. The point is that the afterlife is almost more important than the funereal rites. The women, the relatives of the men who die in battle or in sacrifice, they mourn in really extremely. They don't wash, they scream and cry and wail and and are given this fixed period of mourning in which it's clearly completely fine to just fall into that despair. And then they're expected to scrape off their dirt and put it away in a ritual place and move on, except on the days of the dead annually when you remember you're dead. And it almost works quite well in a really practical sense for a culture where there must be a lot of people who die and who die away from home as a way of coping with it, being allowed to mourn and then put that away is quite a kind of practical way of dealing with death. And so it doesn't make sense almost a parallel would enemy warriors have been given the same rights because no, they're being human sacrificed in your city, which is a whole, goes a completely different, right? So yes, they're, they're dying in similar ways, but in totally different places, if that makes sense. So it's all entangled with this belief structure that is practical, but is also ideological. You mentioned that women who died in childbirth were also almost seen as warriors. Was this the only way in which women engage with the Aztec way of war? Absolutely not. So although women don't tend to be fighters themselves, as far as we can tell, they are incredibly embedded in this, what I called a warlike culture. I should probably say this article is free online. People can read it if they're interested. There is one example that we know of where women actually fight. And that is in the 1473 civil war where the Tenocha of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, fight with the Tlatelolca, who it's the other city that's on the island they're on, basically. And there's a really desperate civil war. And we know that the Tlatelolca women come out and that not only with traditional weapons, but they squirt breast milk onto their opponents and show them their buttocks and they throw weaving implements at them. And so they're fighting both in the traditional way, but also with like weapons of femininity. And that shows that desperation, but it also is something that's paralleled in our sources. We often see goddesses holding weaving batons, they're the kind of wooden stick bit that you use to push down the threads, a big, if people imagine, I don't know, about a foot long, quite sharp, actually. You could really stab somebody with one of those if you had a go at it. So they are shown in warrior poses, but with women's implements. And so weaving batons, the spindle whirls, which are the little stones with the hole in them that are used to turn cotton into thread. They actually are called the little shield in lots of the sources. Jeff and Sharice McCafferty, who are two archaeologists, have done some work suggesting that these stone spindle whirls carried the same images as men's shields, in fact. So they used as a kind of parallel of identity for men and women. And over and above that, you don't really need to argue that women actually fought to see how important they were 
in Aztec warfare because they were responsible for the spiritual side of warfare. So while the men are away at battle, women are required to do all of these rituals that will help keep the world in balance and will allow Huitzilopochtli, the patron god, to support them. Louise Burkhart has called it the home front, and it's a really neat way of summarising the, the two responsibilities. So when your husband's away at war, a woman has to get up at midnight and do rituals. You sweep, which for the Aztecs is to do with getting rid of excess Klatsoli, a word that's often translated as sin, but actually means more like dirt or stuff out of place. And so sweeping is a religious act. You don't wash your face or head while your husband is away at war, which in this very clean society would mark you out as someone who is ritually important during that time. They have to go to the temple. They hang the bones of previous captives from their husband in the temple, presumably reminding the gods that their husband has served before, trying to get them to support him. So they are keeping the cosmos in balance, doing all the ritual acts that are necessary to deploy spiritual support for the warriors on the battlefield. And we know the battlefield and the home are really closely tied up because even small things in the home supposedly affect what happens on the battlefield. So if you let your husband eat a tamale that has stuck to the cooking pot, it's said his arrow won't find its mark on the battlefield. So all these small actions supposedly have big consequences in the military sphere. Speaking about the home front, I believe families and particularly children were brought into this idea, this culture of warfare from quite an early age. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Even in the birth rituals, you see the Aztec people setting up the destinies of boys and girls. And so we have these incredible rituals. And one fascinating thing about them is that the midwife leads them, whether it's a boy or a girl. She is the absolutely central kind of religious figure in these rituals. So women are, again, really important. Boys, they do a naming ceremony for boys and girls about four days after the children are born. And at that time, each child is given the tools of their adulthood, essentially. So little boys are given a miniature shield and spears, sometimes also craft tools if they're a particularly craft family, and their umbilical cord is taken and buried on the battlefield by senior warriors, where the little girl She's given a spindle and weaving battens, weaving implements and a tiny broom and her umbilical cord is buried under the hearth in the home. And it's marking out these destinies of these boys and girls. And then for the boys, about 20 days after they're born, the parents take them to the temple and dedicate them to one of the gods. And for most children, most commoner children, it is the temple of Tezcatlipoca, the temple of the smoking mirror, who is the patron god of the Telpocali, which is the warrior school for boys. It's there that they're dedicated. It puts them under the protection of that god. But then it also makes a kind of vow that when they reach their teenage years, they'll be sent to that temple school for training in warrior activities. And what did that training look like? We actually have very little information about the training, unhelpfully. And the sources vary wildly about who goes to which school and exactly when and what age. So some of them say they start when they're seven. Some of them say they start when they're 14. It's really, really annoying. But almost certainly they are learning basic tactics, basic weapon handling 
And also it seems each boy has a senior mentor who can help take them onto the battlefield, show them what to do. And of course, the more important you are, the more senior your mentor is likely to be, the more influential that they are. One of the amazing things about Aztec culture is it's the only pre-modern culture I know of that has universal education for boys and girls. And so boys go to either the warrior school, the Talpochali, or they go to the Kalmakak, which is the priestly elite school. And girls and boys go to a place called the Kuikakali, the House of Song, where they learn history, religion, rhetoric and so on. And also as teenagers get a chance to interact. But I think it's so important because it often gets forgotten. This is not a society where everybody is just doing all these religious things and has no idea why they're doing them. Everybody is taught why they're doing the things they're doing, the meaning of sacrifice. It's not like in the contemporary European culture where the services are in Latin and you don't understand, you know, the mystery is part of the point. They go to incredible lengths to explain to people, here's why we're going to sacrifice people. Here's why our religion works the way it is. Here are our obligations. Here's what you need to do. It's really, really important, I think, in understanding how you can build this culture, this worldview that has all these things within it. This is something that we've been sort of mentioning as we've gone along. We've talked about the opportunity to perhaps rise in the ranks. How did a person's role in warfare tie into their social status? I feel like I've said this a few times, but Aztec culture is really fascinating in this regard because it not only has quite strict hierarchies, but also some ability for social mobility. So everybody was a warrior. All men were warriors, even a group of people that are quite shady in the sources called the Tlalmayetl, the hand of the earth, who don't have any of the other city obligations, but they have to be warriors. So it seems like this is something that all men, with the exception of a few priests, would have been involved with. And so having warfare as the underlying structure is incredibly important. Now, it's important to say that we have professional warriors, so people like the Cuatla Ocelotl, the eagle and jaguar warriors, and the shorn ones, as they're often called, the Otomis. You have these elite warrior orders, and then you have everybody else who just fight in the fighting season and then are also farmers and craftspeople, work in the markets and so on. So you have these different types of warriors, and the majority of the professional warriors are nobles, we have in Aztec culture, nobles and commoners. Now, here's the interesting part. If you are a particularly able commoner warrior and you distinguish yourself in war, you can rise up to become a member of one of the elite orders. And if you're particularly distinguished, you can be made a noble. There are two forms of nobility in Aztec culture. There's the tecutli, which we usually translate as lord. They're the high lords. And they're the pili, which we usually translate as noble. And you can become a pili from being a commoner, a noble, but that status isn't hereditary. Your children won't become nobles. Though presumably they'll be put into quite a good position for what comes next. Tecutli, the high lords, are the, the rulers, the generals and so on, and the high priests. But you can't be born a tecutli. You can only be born a pili, a noble. And then you have to distinguish yourself in war or in some other arena in order to be elevated as a noble to high lord status. So the Aztecs put an awful lot of emphasis on ability. Birth does matter, but if you're incompetent, you can't be successful in Aztec culture, you can't be important. They really, really care about 
the competence of their warriors, of their leaders. And that's shown in one of their myths where the nobles go to the ordinary people and they say, we want you to follow us in this war. And they say, if we fail, you can eat us in broken pots, is the phrase. Whether it's literal or metaphorical is not clear. But if we win, you will agree to follow us. So it's it's a balance. You know, there's a sense of a reciprocity. The nobles will lead competently and in exchange, ordinary people will follow them. And I've wandered away from social status, but the, the point is that you have a culture where the idea is that everyone has a role. Now, that said, social status is important and they mark out success in war quite obviously. So if you've captured four or more enemy warriors then you can become an eagle warrior or a jaguar warrior. If you capture five or six, or according to some sources, 20, do 20 or more brave deeds, you can become a really elite warrior like the Otontin, the Otomis, or the Kwauchike, the Shorn ones, who are these really gloriously arrayed. They stand out, they get privileges and lands and, and are wealthy by the standards of Aztec culture. And one of the really important things is that if you're important, you get to wear things that show you're important. So you get particular adornments, special hairstyles. All young men, when they're about 10, all boys, have to shave their hair and they leave a little lock, a warrior lock at the back called a piochtli. And until you take a captive, you can't cut that warrior lock. And so if you haven't been succeeding in warfare, everybody can tell that you've not succeeded. And one source even says that if you fail to take a captive after a certain number of tries, they cut it off and they burn the area where the lock was so you can never ascend to status. So it's that combination of competence, as I said, and birth. And they really care about marking out social status. There's a set of laws that are issued by Moctezuma I and he includes in them not only things like that everybody has to go to the schools and become warriors but also that you can't wear a cape that comes below your knee unless you're an elite warrior or you have wounds on your legs that show you've been in battle you see and have survived that battle. So there's as I say, social status plus competence coming out in all these little hints. So could we say that dress also distinguished between the ranks as, as well? And I wonder, as part of that, could you tell us a little bit more about the outfits? I know you've mentioned about cloaks and hairstyles. Dress is incredibly important. It definitely distinguishes different people. The vast majority of warriors, though, would have worn similar outfits. They would have had cotton armour protecting their trunk because that's where your vital organs are. Often carried a shield made of cane or wood, very frequently with a design on it that reflects either how important you are or your district where you've come from, so you're recognisable to other people, and then you would have carried a weapon as well. It's only at the higher statuses where you're getting these glorious feathered or animal skin outfits, or the uh, shorn ones, the kwauchike, apparently have four crescents on their shield. They carry a makwakwitl, which is the club that, the, or sword that we'll come on to talk about. And they are allowed to wear their hair with a tassel with a red ribbon, for example. And everyone would know that that was them. So you have this incredible adornment and display of the high elite people. Ordinary people would have decorated themselves, but it's a much more basic uniform, realistically. 
Building on what you said there about weaponry, would you mind telling us some of the most common weapons used by the Aztecs? Yes, so the most common ones are the macuahuitl that I mentioned, which is a kind of bladed club. It's usually made of wood and it has pieces of obsidian stuck into it and sometimes called a sword. A bit, the Spanish call them broad swords because they're large, but they don't have quite as long a hilt. The sources say they're about three fingers wide, the hilt, so it's quite a small hilt. And then they have sharp bits stuck all around it. And obsidian is the, one of the sharpest materials in the world. It's sharper even than a scalpel. Apparently, I read recently that obsidian is apparently the only material that supposedly can be sharpened to the width of one atom. But it's incredibly fragile. So it's like glass. It's a kind of black glass. If anyone knows jet from Whitby, that's kind of what it looks like. It's kind of a black glass and it is so sharp but it does shatter on contact with iron, for example, which makes it problematic against the Spanish. Very, very sharp. So that's the macuahuit, which is a kind of bladed club. You then have slings or tematlat, which are about five feet long. The maguay made from a kind of plant cord, a rope, which you swing stones round and then release and they fly against the enemy. Those supposedly, Bernal Diaz, who's a Spanish conquistador, said that those were the most lethal of the weapons, more than any of the others, because you get this hail of stones coming down. And he said that the hail of stones was so furious that even the most well-armoured Spanish soldiers were injured, he said. Because you have them all, if you imagine, it's similar to when people release a hail of arrows, but instead it's tons of little stones falling down. I read one historian saying that these little stone bullets could go through the skull of a man at 200 yards, which is quite incredible, if it's true. That's very fast. There's then the atlat, which some people may have heard of, which is a kind of spear thrower or javelin thrower. It's quite well known. You get people still hunting with them now, more in the United States than Mexico, and there are tournaments and things. And it's about the length of an arm. You have a grip at one end and a hook, and you throw the spear using the hook. And of course, you can go much, much faster with these than you could if you were simply throwing the javelins or the spears by hand. And and then you have bows and arrows as well. So at the beginning of a battle, people would throw spears, bows and arrows, and also the, use the slings to put down hails of projectiles at the beginning of the battle. Of course, you can't do that during the battle because you hit your own people. So it happens at the beginning of the battle. There's also a kind of spear. It's often translated as a spear. It's a tepostopili, but it's somewhere between a halberd and a spear. It's not actually used for stabbing, it's used for slashing. And that's again because obsidian has this very sharp edge that is excellent if you're slashing at someone, but is not so great for poking somebody with the end. It's not It's not quite as sharp if you're pointing it at people. So uh, yeah, I think that's all, all the main weapons. Can I just ask, was the use of obsidian just for practical reasons or was there anything more to it? It's used in warfare for practical reasons. As I say, it is very sharp, extremely effective, especially if you're trying to slash people's legs so they bleed and fall down so you can drag them off for sacrifice. Very, very effective, very, very sharp. Obsidian does have spiritual importance and kind of metaphorical meanings. So Tezcatlipoca, who I mentioned, who is the smoking mirror, god of rulers and soothsayers and priests, 
His name, Smoking Mirror, it refers to the Obsidian Mirror, which is used for soothsaying and fortune telling and for religious ceremonies, for example. You can see him in some codices because one of his feet has been replaced by an obsidian mirror. It's a little circle. It replaces one of his feet. And that's supposedly because he tempted the great earth goddess Sipaxli out of the primordial waters by dangling his foot in and she bites his foot off and the gods grab her and rip her into pieces and turn her into the earth. This is one of the blood sacrifices that is at the beginning of time. And they rip her into pieces and turn her into the earth. And so they replace his foot with a mirror in the codices to show that that foot is missing. It's just sort of interesting little sidebar. The point is, it does have this overtone of gods and of, of fates and of soothsaying, but it's not being used in battle because of that. It's being used because it's a very effective killing device. On that note, what did an Aztec battle look like? I mean, obviously, I've spoken a little bit about what the warriors might look like and about the fact that at the beginning you get this hail of projectile weapons and then they run at each other, essentially, from about 60 metres apart or so. And it's to do with trying to smash through the line and enable you to encircle your enemies. What's really fascinating is that they go to great lengths to set up communication points because they're very strategic. So you would have smoke signals, essentially, from high ground nearby. They also really liked, I think, every army in history probably preferred this, downhill assaults were more successful. You want to have the high ground and, and run downhill and be able to projectile weapons onto the top of people. It's much more effective. They also use myriad mirrors to signal because, of course, all fighting is done in daylight. They don't, they don't fight at night. And so they use mirrors to signal. And then in the heat of battle, they use the large standards and drums and music to make signals to the groups of warriors. Now, one thing people might not know is that these can be very, very large battles. You're talking about, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of people. We know that as many as 100,000 Klamemeke, the porters, could go along with these armies. So they need huge amounts of provisions when they're traveling. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in some cases and split up into groups of 8,000 called shikipii. And each of those, because the Aztecs count in 20s, you see. So you have groups of 20 or 40 men, 8,000 is the, like the regiment. And you have groups of 20 or 40 men within that. And it seems that they were rotated in and out as they start to get tired. And you have senior warriors looking out for where there may be gaps in the line, using the standards and the music to order people in and out of the battle. It's quite a fluid moving space. And they're trying to encircle essentially and to cut off these people, often from their own city, where they would try and burn the temple. Now, warfare is one of those subjects that tempts people to be very factual about it. You know, this is what definitely happened. And some people have claimed that they try to burn the temple because that is where the armory is next door in all likelihood. And so if you see the temple burning, then you know that you've lost I think that they may be going a little bit far in speculating because the symbol for a defeated city is a temple with its roof askew and on fire. And personally, my 
interpretation of that is that it, what it shows is that you've conquered the gods, you're more successful than the gods of that city. It's, it's a symbolic thing. That said, they certainly aren't capturing territory in the same way we think of. This isn't armies who are dug in with trenches. It's very mobile warfare. It's intended to get a city to surrender rather than tending to be sieges. You do occasionally have sieges if a city has completely refused to surrender under any circumstances, but it's not enormously common. But these are very large battles and they can go on for multiple days. They require a lot of provisioning, a lot of support, and they're very colourful and very noisy as any battle would be, as you would expect. Did they have strategic intelligence, perhaps like the equivalent of modern day spies or surveillance? Yeah, we know that they have spies. So intelligence is incredibly important if you're fighting a strategic battle. It's not just a case of throwing a large army against people, although the fact that they could draw on so many warriors really does help, obviously. Strategic intelligence that enables you to cut behind them, to know what they're doing is really vital. And also intelligence about faraway places that tells you if there's going to be revolts, if there's discontent, if you need to deploy militaries to distant territories. And we actually have references in the sources to long distance merchants who are undercover spies. And for that reason, merchants are the only group of people that are allowed to buy captives for sacrifice. They're treated as if they are warriors because they're seen as these undercover spies who go into enemy territory to collect information while at the same time trading and gaining resources that the Aztecs need. And so we have little details that tell us that in fact they did have spies and these people were seen as themselves warriors. Now as a final question to you, I wanted to ask, is there anything that you think might surprise us about Aztec warfare? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know is the answer. I think perhaps the thing, and I've alluded to this a little bit, that people might find most surprising is how little we actually know about it in reality. Because if you Google Aztec warfare, you will get hundreds of pictures of uniforms, information about different ranks, details saying, well, this could they were exactly this number of people in the army on this day, or that the spears, for example, were exactly this long. And we have no surviving examples of those. We don't know exactly what they look like. Where in fact, the sources that we're working with are all post-conquest. There's very little archaeology. They All of them are filtered either through colonial or Spanish perspectives, because the Spanish destroy the vast majority of the enormous corpus of Aztec pictographic literature. And so it's one of those topics where there's an awful lot of interest in it in a sort of scientific way. And that tempts many historians to write in a very, well, we know, as I, as I said, you know, young boys joined the Topokali at 14 and they trained for this many years and then they went to this many battles. And the reality is that the sources are A, fragmented and B, contradictory. <laughs> and so I think the thing that people might be most surprised by is how little we in fact know, given how much has been written about it and how authoritative everybody sounds about it. I think that's a fantastic point to leave us on. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Caroline. Thank you for having me on and letting me talk about women as well as men in the context of warfare, which is always nice. That was Caroline Dodds-Panic, Senior Lecturer in International History at the University of Sheffield and author of On Savage Shores, How Indigenous Americans Discovered Europe, which was published earlier this year by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Greenhardt. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.